said. Amen. You can take a seat. If you've got your Bibles, you can open to the gospel according to Luke chapter 3. Uh, we'll be in verses 1 through 6. If I haven't met you, I uh, see a few people I haven't met before. My name's Travis. I am the college and career pastor here at Baylife Church, uh, and I'm very grateful that you are here. Uh, you may kind of wonder what the deal with the candles in the back is, or um, if we're some kind of a weird cult, that is not the case. Um, actually, we are, for the next four weeks, I guess this would be week two, the next two weeks, we're marking the season of Advent. And Advent is uh, something that, that I want to explain every week because I never want us to misunderstand why it is we're marking it or why it is that we celebrate it and have celebrated it now for two years as a ministry. Uh, the word Advent means the arrival of or the appearing of or the coming of someone or something. And so we as Christians are marking specifically the arrival of the word made flesh, Jesus uh, God taking on the form of a man, being born in a manger and, or in a, a stable in Bethlehem and being laid down in a manger about 2,000 years ago. And this is actually something that Christians have marked. This season is something that believers in Jesus have marked for over 1,000 years now, actually probably around three to 400 A.D., the church started to think about, well, what does it mean when Jesus says that he is the Alpha and the Omega, that he is Lord of history? And, and what would it look like if Jesus is Lord of history for us to not even allow the way that we measure time to escape unmarked by him? And so we don't have, like, Jesus o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, but, but they started to look at, well, how, how has God marked time in the past? And so what he did for Israel is that he gave them festivals and holidays and feasts, which would be a great thing to bring back in the church. Uh, and, and he said, I want you to mark these year in and year out. And there's very complicated in Leviticus the way that they make sure that they get the right day every year. But, but it wasn't just kind of like a party. It wasn't just like, oh, you've worked hard, now play hard and eat like the turkey legs that they sell at theme parks. But, but instead, all of these celebrations and these holy days and these feasts, they were given a meaning, and God would say, I want you to celebrate Passover so that you remember what I did for you in delivering you out of Egypt. I want you to celebrate the Day of Atonement because I want you to mark how I am making atonement for your sins, and, and on and on and on it goes. These days had significance, and the significance was tied to things God had done or was doing among his people or what he would do for his people. And so the great thing about the church calendar, which is what the, the church produced in about three or 400 is that Jesus already did half of our job for us because half of the really important things he did, he did on holy days in Judaism. So he is crucified uh, and, and raised over Passover weekend. So that's pretty simple. We just recognize that Passover has new meaning in light of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is poured out during Pentecost, which is not actually originally a Christian holiday. It's a Jewish holiday. And so they just go, okay, well now, from now on, we remember Pentecost as the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out on believers. But there are things like Jesus' birth that, that we don't exactly know the day of. And so um, if you think he was born on December 25th, there may be some good reason to think that, but we don't actually know that. The Bible does not say. And on the 25th of December, the Lord Jesus was born. And so, so this, is the season that, um, this is the season that the church has chosen to use to mark 
these aspects of Jesus' life so that in the spring we can remember his death and his resurrection. And later on we can remember the coming of the Holy Spirit. The summer is given to thinking about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And then when we step into the winter season, we mark these three holy seasons, if you will, Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. And so Advent is what we are in. Christmas in traditional Christianity lasts 12 days. So 12 days of Christmas didn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, The idea was that what happened in Bethlehem was so profound that one day was not enough to mark it. And so there's 12 days of Christmas, and then Epiphany marks where Gentiles first see the salvation of God when the three wise men follow the star and they see Jesus in the manger. So Advent is actually not an extended four-week Christmas celebration, and I want to keep holding that out in front of you. There's a reason we're not singing Christmas carols, other than the fact that it's cliche, Um, and there's a reason that that there's not a baby Jesus in the manger picture uh, as our graphic for this. Advent is not Christmas. Advent is the season set aside to remember what it was like for the people who longed and waited for the coming of the Messiah. It's also a time for us to recognize that those from Adam on who waited for redemption are not so different from us because we look at his first coming and we long for his return. And so, Advent is a season for us to learn about what it looks like to wait. And not to wait in an empty sense as we kind of twiddle our thumbs and hope something happens, but to wait with expectant hope. And the interesting thing about Advent is that it's actually, actually the whole church calendar is tied to the seasons itself. And I don't know if you know what seasons are. They're not actually a thing here in Florida. But there are places in the world where it looks different from season to season. Uh, And some of you may have lived there. Some of you may have seen pictures of there. And you go, I wonder, is that real or is that photoshopped? But it is real, I assure you. And so for believers like three or 400 miles north, this is an interesting time of year because here's a couple things that are true even for us to a certain extent. Uh, winter is the darkest time of the year. The days are the shortest, the nights are the longest, and in places where it gets cold, things die. So it's dark and it's cold and it's hostile. You can't leave your dog out in Alaska, especially during winter because you won't have a dog in the morning. Uh, In the same way, even in Florida when it gets cold, you can't actually leave your, your plants out because the hostility of the season, especially for our pathetic Florida plants, they can't handle temperature changes. And so here's what's happening in Advent, as in the most bleak and the darkest and the deadliest time of year, Christians would set up Advent candles, and each week, moving towards the coming of Jesus, they would light another of the candles. So in the midst of darkness, the coming of the Son of God brings greater and greater light. And in this season, in the most hostile season that we know as people, in the midst of everything around us screaming that everything is passing away and nothing is permanent, the Son of God steps into our darkness and brings light. That is why we mark it now. And last year, I kind of mourned the fact that you guys wouldn't actually see the winter season and, and think about that as we walked through Advent. Uh, the reality is if I could change anything about Florida, I would change the weather. I like pretty much everything else about it. But, but in reality, I don't actually think that you need snow and frost to, to point to the fact that, that life is 
transient and that the world is a bleak and a dark and a dismal place. I think all you need to do is turn on the news. Uh, last year, I was thinking about this and going, man, if we just had like one cold snap, it would be a great illustration. Uh, but then you had the race riots that happened. Uh, and the, the undercurrent of racism that has kind of boiled in our country boiled over. And so you, all you needed to do was turn on the TV and see that we live in a bleak world. And this year, we have bombings and we have shootings. We have terrorism at home and we have it abroad. All you need to do to see that this world is fleeting and transient and bleak and dark and hopeless is to turn on the television. And it's in the middle of this that we light candle after candle, saying that in the middle of our darkness, the very light of the world steps in and begins to set things right. So Advent is about waiting, but it's about waiting with a hope. And it's a hope that passes beyond the material because all you need to do is look at the material and see that it's relatively hopeless. And so for the next four weeks, or for the, these last two weeks and the next two weeks, we are looking at what it means to live as a people who wait well and who wait with hope. And so with that in mind, we turn to the gospel according to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is the last reading for the evening uh, out of the lectionary. Uh, it says this. I'll read it for you, and then we'll walk through it. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, Iturea. I'm going to pronounce a lot of these wrong. Have mercy. And Trachonitis, which sounds like a disease, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas, Annas, and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every low mountain and hill shall be made, or every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So it's interesting. Luke is really the only of the four gospel authors who includes an account of Jesus' youth. Uh, and a lot of people actually think that's because Luke interviewed Mary in, in the process of compiling his gospel because there's this interesting little tidbit at the end where he's finished recounting Jesus' youth and he says, Mary stored up all these things and she pondered them in her heart. And so many would say that in compiling this gospel, Luke sat down with Mary and he said, could you tell me a little bit about what Jesus was like? What's it like having God as your kid? Uh, how do you like, I mean, did he like put you in time out or I mean, how did this, how did this work? So he's, he's interviewed Mary and now he moves from Jesus's childhood. He gives kind of some, uh, some highlights of Jesus's childhood. He's moving into Jesus's ministry when Jesus begins to proclaim the gospel publicly. Now, we think Luke was probably a doctor and the reason is because Paul refers to him in one of his letters as the beloved physician. Uh, and, and so some people have tried to figure out kind of his medical background in reading through the book of Luke and Acts, and truthfully, we just don't know. But whatever Luke is, whatever kind of doctor he is, he's a brilliant historian. 
He's a phenomenal historian, and he's actually a pretty good theologian as well. And so Luke begins to talk about Jesus' primary chunk of ministry, what Jesus did, and he starts in this way. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and on and on and on he goes. I'm not going to try and read it again because I'll get it even worse than I did the first time. But it's interesting uh, that that's how he chooses to start. He doesn't start with, uh, like Mark does, uh, he, well, I mean, he does kind of start like Mark does, but he doesn't just start with Jesus. He starts by giving us people and political leaders and dates and years and things. So here's something that, that has come to be very common. Um, you have these passing conversations with people who would say, you know, I think there's some great stuff in the Bible. Uh, I mean, some good stuff for, for living if you're in the South. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not actually true. It's, it's a lot of stories that carry some interesting weight, and, and it's kind of like, it's like Homer or Aesop's fables where they didn't actually happen, but it doesn't change the profundity of the, the meaning behind them. Maybe there's some of you in this room who would say the same thing. Uh, but what's interesting in the way that we tell stories and fairy tales and fables uh, is that they start with a couple different phrases, like, once upon a time. And they set themselves in a distant place in a distant past that's undefinable. Or maybe a modern fairy tale a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And I'm sure everybody's excited for that on the 18th. But it doesn't locate itself in history. Luke does not set out to write a fairy tale. Luke does not start off with a long, long time ago in a province far, far away. He locates what he's about to tell us in history and in time. In the 15th year of Tiberius' reign as Caesar, during Pontius Pilate's governorship of Judea, when Herod was the tetrarch and his brother Philip was the tetrarch of some other place I can't pronounce. He is locating this in history. He has not set out to write for us a fairy tale. He set out to tell us about something that actually happened, something concrete that we can lay hold of. He sets out to tell us not that God has moved metaphorically at some distant time in some distant place, but that God has moved concretely in time and in space in people's lives. That he has stepped into his very creation. Now this actually has implications for what it means to have hope. It's funny, um, I can't say that I've ever actually gone through this, but, but as far as I can tell, when two people like each other and they go through like a, the dating phase, uh, if you're smart, you don't tell the person that you're interested in all of your personal life stories within like the first week. I, I, I realize this is crass, but I call it like the dog butt sniffing phase where dogs sniff each other's butts. That's not the point at which you spill the beans about everything about your life, right? But you have to build and develop trust and go, is this, first of all, is this somebody I actually like or do I just think they're hot? And second of all, is this somebody I actually trust? And how do you develop trust with somebody when they prove themselves trustworthy time and time and time again? And if they haven't done that, you may spill the beans or you may put some confidence in them, but it's not particularly well placed. 
But here's the reality of what Luke is saying is for us to say that we hope that there will come a day when Jesus will step into history and do something and fix what's wrong, what we would call the second coming. This is not a blind faith. Your faith was never meant to be blind any more than your confidence in your wife or in your longtime boyfriend or your fiance or the girl that you've dated for years. It's not blind. They've proven themselves trustworthy by acting in your life in such a way that you think that you can rely on them. And what Luke is saying is that God has acted in history in a way that proves himself trustworthy, that we can have hope that Jesus will step back into history because he's already stepped in once. And we can have confidence that he will do it again, not because we just kind of heard that that would happen, but because he's already done it before. In the 15th year of Tiberius' reign as Caesar, when Herod was tetrarch and, and on and on and on it goes, he's saying this happened in history, and so we can trust that it will happen again because it's happened before. So, in the 15th reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea. He goes on to list the high priests, which for the people of Israel would have been kind of the equivalent of popes in terms of popularity, but not in terms of their authority, I guess we could say. What's interesting, again, is that he doesn't actually start with people that that are actually going to play a huge role in the rest of the story, except for maybe Pilate and Herod. He starts with politicians, uh, and this, this is kind of interesting to me. In reading the commentaries, uh, one of the things that a lot of people say is that, especially with Tiberius, you're talking about the most well-known human being in the entire ancient world, right? Tiberius Caesar. We don't know anything like the Roman Empire. If you think America is cool and that what has happened in America is profound, you haven't actually studied Roman history, which lasted for like a 1,000 years We're only on like a fourth of that as the United States. And Rome just conquered things and said, you're Rome now too. You don't want to be Rome? Too bad. You're Rome. And so Rome is this profound and expansive, I mean, it is the known world. There's some things going on in America that that they don't know about. But for all intents and purposes, Caesar is the most well-known person in the entire known world. And so if we were to take Luke's introduction here and kind of transpose it to now, we would maybe say in the second term of President Barack Obama when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State during the campaign of Bernie Sanders in the eighth year of the reign of Rick Scott. I mean, like, like we we would transpose it to people that we know. And he starts in a broad sense with, with the head of the known world, and he funnels down further and further and further. And I can, and this is where I, I start to think that Luke is kind of a brilliant theologian, uh, in that you read all these big names. And you think you're going to, I mean, the expectation is, well, what did Caesar do? He's the most powerful person in the whole world. Well, maybe it wasn't. What did, what did Pilate do? I mean, he's the governor of Judea. Well, okay, so maybe, maybe you're not talking about Pilate. Well, what did Herod do? He was, he was the tetrarch, and, and then it keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And what you're expecting is for one of these powerful men to do something profound, And the funnel gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it's this crazy-looking guy covered in honey and camel skin in the middle of the desert. He doesn't say the word of the Lord came to Caesar, nor did the word of the Lord come to Pilate, nor did the word of the Lord come to Herod. It didn't come to the high priest. It came to a man who had taken the vow of the Nazarite, wandering in the desert. 
But even the way we read this and we think, well, what did Caesar do? Well, what did Herod do? We look at these powerful people and I think it kind of gives way to the things that we place our confidence and our hope in because the last thing that we're expecting is for this wandering prophet to come out of the desert full of fire and fury having heard the word of the Lord. We put our hope in kings. We don't put our hope in desert men. But there's a, there's a reality here that we need to work at because we, we talk about Advent being a season where we remind ourselves of what it means to have hope, what it means to wait in hope and in anticipation and a hope that's not groundless, but a hope that's grounded in history. The reality, though, is that many of us would say we have hope, but we're hoping in Caesars. And we're hoping in Pilots, and we're hoping in Tetrarchs, and we're hoping in high priests. And so maybe this is a season where we have to take a step back from the things that we've hoped in and examine those. A great way to figure out what your hope is in is to ask the question, what if removed from me would utterly destroy me? And you will find that that is the source of your joy and it's likely the source of your hope. I had a friend who I love very dearly, who I think is a very, very nice guy, but this band that he was in, that he'd been in for a long time, so I get it, it's emotional, it's like a marriage, um, band he was in for a long time broke up and I sat out front of a show with him as he sobbed like a child uh, sitting on a one of those parking blocks and said my life is over I don't have anything to live for and on and on and on we went and I looked the other way and tried not to laugh because it was just so pathetic um, but <laughs> I'm I'm morbid. Uh, but but here, here's the reality is what you're seeing is somebody's source of hope removed. And what you realize is that the thing that he's hoped in isn't enough to carry him through. His hope, his confidence, the thing that has carried him through life was that he had a place of belonging in this band that he was in. And once it's gone, so is his hope. And I wonder if we have put our hope in the political system or in the fact that maybe if we just educate enough people, then some of the social ills in our world will go away. Or maybe we've put our faith in programs and programming that this would eliminate the brokenness in our world. Or maybe we've put our faith in the fact that if we just lose another 15 pounds, maybe the girl or the guy of our dreams will like us. Or we've put our hope in the fact that, that when we get our ducks in a row and we get our finances right, then life is really gonna start to look up. Or we put our hope in the fact that maybe at the next G20 summit, we'll finally sort out this problem of terrorism. And we put our hope in Caesar after Caesar after Caesar after Caesar. And here's what Luke is saying, just in the way that he frames this, is that even the source of your hope is misplaced if it's placed in anything other than what God is doing. And what God is doing is more often than not in deserts and in men clothed in camel's hair who have heard the word of the Lord rather than politicians and wise social plans based on human wisdom. So examine your hope in this season. What is it that you hope in? What is it that, that you hold on to when you see the bleakness of the world? Because I'm telling you that the hope of a Christian ultimately is that Christ will come and set things right. And that is a sure and steady hope, and it's a hope that's grounded in history because Christ has already stepped in once and he's promised that he would do it again. So, we're told that the word of the Lord comes to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. 
And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And then there's a quotation from Isaiah that is cited here. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. I went on a mission trip probably five or six years ago, and I was in the Dominican Republic. And um, just so you know, John the son of Zechariah is John the Baptist, in case you weren't make, putting two and two together. And there was a dog at the location that we stayed at who they had named Juan Baptisto, which is hysterical to me because the dog's name was John the Baptist. <laughs> and giving animals people names is just funny. So, so I think of that every, every time I read this. But John the Baptist is an interesting character. He's very far removed from the people that open this passage. He's not a king. He's not a prince. He's not a tetrarch. He's not a high priest. He is one man in the wilderness who has heard the call of God on his life and has decided that he is going to do something about it. And so he steps out of the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. We've sung songs about that this evening. We've read uh, scripture, especially from Malachi, that refers to preparing the way of the Lord. This passage in Isaiah is actually really interesting. Uh, it talks about the, the paths being made straight, valleys filled, mountains being made low, crooked things becoming straight, rough places becoming level ways. And when you read this and when you look at the ancient world, what Isaiah is actually describing is the building of a road. He's not talking about literal mountains collapsing. He is talking about valleys being filled so that they are level walking places. And we still do this today. They don't, didn't quite do it as much, but cutting through uh, mountains and cutting through ways so that a road could be built. Here's, here's something that we need to understand as Christians as we wait now for about 2,000 years for Jesus to return. God works slowly. And God builds roads. It would have been very easy from the moment of the fall for God to go, all right, reset. That's not what he does. In fact, what you see through the Old Testament is a road for Jesus to walk on being built. He calls Abraham out of his home nation to make him the father of many nations. He allows Joseph to be sold into slavery so that the children of Abraham can survive. From Egypt, he calls the people of Israel out into the land of Canaan, and they are called into exile, and they are called back. And from among the people, the judges are called out. And after the judges, the kings are called out. And then the prophets are called out, and mountains are leveled, and valleys are made high, and on and on and on. A road is built so that 2,000 years ago, the Son of God can walk. There's a reason so often that we wait for God to move, and it's because there are things that need to be ordered first. John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which was not particularly popular for the people of Israel because what baptism was for was for wicked, filthy, wretched Gentiles who were sinners and weren't right with God. And so what John the Baptist is saying and telling the people of Israel to get baptized is you've got problems, God's on his way, there needs to be a road cleared and you need to get out of the way. 
you're not ready for him. The son of man is coming and you are not prepared. And so I am here to clear the road. We need John the Baptists in our churches. More often than not, we pray for revival, but we've left the road untended. Um, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, uh, was interviewed a while back, and I remember uh, watching this interview and being so struck by it. And somebody asked him, what, what prevents revival in our churches? Why is it that, that we don't see great awakenings anymore? And why is it that we don't see uh, things like the Welsh revival in, in our day? And he said, truthfully, the church hasn't prepared the way for the Lord. We, we may have a love of God, but we don't have a love of holiness. He actually went on to say the, the number one thing preventing revival in our churches is the fact that Christians are no different than the world in terms of sexual immorality. That there is such impurity in the church that we expect God to walk down a highway that we have left not maintained for centuries. And so we find ourselves waiting. And we may even pray in our own lives that God would break in and that he would do something new and that he would move in a profound way. But I do have to ask you, is the highway of your heart unkempt? Does it need a John the Baptist to prepare the way for God to break in and do something? Because we can, we can wait, but if we leave the road filled with roadblocks, we shouldn't have any expectation in our waiting. What's crazy is that upon... Christ's ascension, he commissions the disciples, he sends them out into the world, and what he essentially does is he sends out 12 John the Baptists to prepare the way for his return. And the disciples in turn raise up John the Baptist, and they in turn raise up John the Baptist, and you and I, if we are believers in this room, are descendants of these people that Christ raised up to prepare the way for his return. And so believers go to all the nations, baptizing as John went to Israel, baptizing. We go into every corner of the earth, proclaiming the gospel, laying mountains low, raising up valleys, preparing the way for the Lord, anticipating his return when the day that this is fully fulfilled. What Isaiah has said, that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you um, knowing that, God, very often our, our hearts have not been kept well. Lord, that we've asked you to move, but we haven't prepared a way for you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you help us to clear out the roadblocks of our life that prevent you from moving. Lord, I pray that you help us to clear out the things in even this ministry that keep you from moving in a profound way, uh, that we would repent of our sins. Uh, Lord, I pray that as you send us out into the world as your people, um, as uh, really models of Jesus, but, but fulfilling the role of John the Baptist to prepare the way for your return, Lord, I pray that we would never lose sight of the fact that we can have confidence that you will move again because you have moved in the past and you've proven yourself trustworthy. Lord, we pray now that as we come to your table, uh, as we take communion, God, that you would bring us to repentance. Father, that you would give us, um, that you would just give us the grace to, uh, to come to this table in, in a worthy manner, uh, to examine ourselves, 
Lord, to uh, discern your body and your blood, to realize that we are meeting with you um, in fulfilling and keeping the commandments of Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name.